Aaron Lolito here to introduce Wild Roof Journal's April podcast episode. This one is a conversation with Paul Nelson, who is a poet of the Pacific Northwest and founder of the Seattle Poetics Lab. He's also one of the founders of the Poetry Postcard Fest, which we get into a bit in the beginning of our podcast. In addition, we cover a lot about the creative practice of organic or spontaneous writing, as well as Paul's love of music and how that art form intersects with writing. Paul previously worked in radio for over 20 years, and closer to the end of this episode, he gives a great list of musicians to check out. The link to his personal website is paulenelson.com, and the Poetry Postcard Fest website is popo.cards. Both of these are linked in our podcast page. In addition, if the Poetry Postcard Fest sounds appealing to you as we talk a little bit about it, you can register for this event up until July 19th. And there's much more information about that whole event and how to register on the popo.cards website. Joining us in this conversation is Chris Vogt, who also participated in our roundtable discussions. So he'll be the third voice you hear, along with me and Paul. Otherwise, I hope you're enjoying the March issue. The next one up will be issue number eight, and that'll come out in May. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Paul Nelson. Yeah, do you have any questions for us before we get into it? No, I'm delighted uh, you feel my work is uh, merits inclusion in your efforts here, and I'm I'm grateful and humbled for it. So uh, I hope it's a good experience. I love the interview format. I've done many interviews myself. Yeah, I took a peek at your website over the past week or so. Uh, there's a lot to get into. First of all, uh, thanks Susan Anderson, who I know you were in contact with previously, so she's the one who forwarded me your name. Thanks to her for connecting us. And she has a book that's, um, I believe, in pre-release at the moment called Please Plant This Book Coast to Coast. So a little plug for uh, Susan Anderson. Yeah, the first thing I'd actually like to touch on is, a, is one connecting point I noticed to a previous interview I did, and that one was with uh, an artist named Ashley Pryor-Geiger. And she mentioned one of the things that was formative in her artistic experience was uh, Ray Johnson and the correspondence art idea. So I know you're involved in something called Poetry Postcard Fest, and you've been involved with that for quite a bit. And if you could just explain what that is at first and a little bit about its history. It started 15 years ago, 2007. I was living in Auburn, Washington, which is about 30 miles south of Seattle, um, the town originally known as Slaughter and uh, named after Lieutenant William Alloway Slaughter. And I wrote a whole book length poem, sort of a Patterson for Slaughter, a Maximus Poems for Slaughter. And it was called A Time Before Slaughter. And expanded that just last year during the pandemic, the launchless second launch or launch of the second edition. And um, the Postcard Fest, I was uh, involved in a group with Lana Ayers. I said, I want to do something with postcards in the month of August. And she said, I'll help. And uh, I told her kind of what I had in mind. 
And I'm pretty certain that I wanted people to have the experience of spontaneous composition and create a sense of community. And so Lana pretty much put my musings into very clear words and directions. And, um, you know, we've stayed with that language pretty much ever since. So you, you register, you get on a list of 32 poets, yourself included, and the lists start going out on the 4th of July. So um, it used to be that you register on the 4th, get your list on the 5th, and start writing on the 6th of July, and you have till the end of August to write 31 poems. And so we had an anthology called 56 Days of August. To give you a, a sense of that. And, you know, if you're going to expand any month of the year in the United States, August would be a good start because it's the month that we, we really should all be on vacation. And um, having poetry go to the top of the stack in terms of your you know own personal bandwidth is part of what we want to do. And we've been successful beyond my wildest imagination where people feel that it's like a season, postcard season. It's a time of year, which we messed with last year when we moved it way up to the spring equinox so that people would have something to do during the lockdown. But otherwise, it's a very warm weather thing here in the Northern Hemisphere, although we have Southern Hemisphere participants who have a different perspective, but are also used to that Northern Hemisphere hegemony. And it continues to unfold sort of aspects of it. You know, I got postcards, Coastal Salish Yard and, you know, uh, antique postcards. I got a whole drawer of 300, 400 postcards. And then I started making them uh, on my own. And, you know, people will cut out album covers and that's a nice sturdy kind of card. And uh, then I started last year writing the poem and then creating the image. So maybe like a reverse encaustic. And then there's also the calligraphy aspect of it. So once you have the some sense of how to create the image in the poem, then working on your actual handwriting is a Zen kind of thing. And of course, the concept of seriality comes in, which interests me very much and allows uh, somebody to take August and, uh, and have some kind of theme. This year, we're asking people to consider honoring Michael McClure and Diane De Prima, since they both, they both passed last year, were very important to the work of my nonprofit organization. And uh, Diane actually participated in the first Postcard Fest. And one of the poems she sent, we were able to recover, and we're putting it on our um, online Poetry Postcard Fest exhibit, which is launching at the end of March. Perfect. That sounds great. So was was it actually a connection at first to connect August as like a as like vacation and connect the postcard idea from like the vacation mindset? Yes, yes, that was part of it. I love that Jimmy Buffett song uh, that twists the typical postcard. Um, the weather is here. I wish you were beautiful, is what he says. <laughs> and nice. and I just I just love that. I think that's I think that's poetry in itself. And and Danica Dinsmore, who um, co-founded the Splab Project with me, she was a Naropa grad, and she had done an experiment at Naropa called the 315 Experiment with Bernadette Mayer and other poets uh, at Naropa, where they would wake up or they would stay up until 3.15 a.m. and attempt to write from a hypnopompic or hypnogogic state. And so I started, I did that for a few years, and uh, 
you know, I kind of slacked. I started with the 315s, and by the end of August, they were the 815s, you know. I'm like, I'm not getting up in the middle of the night anymore. Um, But I wanted to do something that didn't require getting up in the middle of the night, that didn't, wasn't so necessarily focused on writing from that state or attempting to write from that state. But also, you know, like their project uh, attempted to get to something uh, beyond the ego. What does Olson say in predictive verse? The lyrical interference of the ego. So to get into something that was um, greater than that, I think was part of my, and continues to be part of my um, my charge. Yeah, the one thing I wanted to pursue a little bit is that spontaneity idea. And if I'm correct in this, the, these poems on the postcards uh, should be written in one take or in one sitting or is it like what's the what are the guidelines on the on the one take idea yeah there's a great article um how sending postcards to strangers made me a better designer by david sherwin and if you google that you can find it it's also linked on the postcard website but yeah you sit down you've got the list you got a list of names here i have my list from last year you know you got a list of names and you go down the list and, you know, I'll write on the card. You know, I have cards that have my website URL on the back and are blank on the front. They're glossy. I would not do that again. You know, 500 glossy postcards and it's hard to write on them sometimes, which is kind of a pain in the ass. But, you know, I'll get an idea or I'll have an epigraph and I'll write to I'll write the person's name down and then I'll write the poem. I'll always, you know, put the date and... Uh, and something about where I'm from, you know, Seattle, dear uh, Celeste, you know, exclamation point, and start writing about that. And often I'll write two or three in the same sitting. Sometimes I was connecting the threads. So poems one, two, and three all were connected. You could read them as one longer poem. And I remember bringing them to a critique circle and the guy's like, well, how will they know? <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, it's not important for them to to know. But you know, someone reading them later, maybe in a book of mine or whatever, could see how there was a thread with that. And you know, you ideally you don't scratch out. Um, I think I've had to rip up one or two poems in the fifteen years. It's like, oh, that is just complete shit, you know. So you rip up the card and you recycle it. But for the most part, you know, it's it's like McClure said in the '95 interview that I did with him. It's a it's a very interesting experiment in consciousness to have an experience that I haven't had before and to go where the language leads one. The language that was here before us will um, exist after us and has a life force of its own that I think we can tap into if we do it with the right kind of protocol or intention. And uh, it's a powerful force. And so that's one of the entities I think that we engage when we do this with a real kind of, um, I would even say spiritual intention. I was going to say one or two ripped up postcards in 15 years is pretty good. Well, <laughs> yeah, but also a lot of shitty poems. <laughs> I mean, you know, some of those you never want to see again. And I have a record of everyone, I believe. And, you know, some of them are mediocre. I mean, that's the point isn't that you can sculpt a masterpiece every time you sit down in a 56-day period and, and all 31 of them are going to be jewels. But, you know, you throw enough shit at a wall and some of it's going to stick. And, uh, you know, if you get five good poems out of this, you know, you're in business. I mean, that's a that's a good ratio. I mean, that's almost a Hall of Fame batting average if you were in baseball. Maybe you'd need 10 a month to be in the Hall of Fame or something. 
Um, but you know, the point is to the point is to exercise that. The point is to reach out to a single person. The point is to be a part of community, be inspired by poems that come in, and to practice and to have that sensation in the month of August that the most important thing in your life is poem and getting those things down. And uh, for all those reasons, it's a beautiful thing. Um, do I want to see all the poems, postcard poems I've ever written published? No, 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 please. But, you know, after a while, they come out, you know, the first, probably the first 500 are the hardest. And after that, they all come out decent, at least, I think. And I think that's the key. I, I, I admire these writers in their 80s. And, uh, you know, they can publish just about anything that they write. And that's a, uh, a state that I aspire to achieve in my own life. And I'm only 59, so I, I have some time. My feeling is that poets, if they do it right, peak in their 80s, right about 80, I think, or if they've been taking care of themselves, maybe 85. And then after that, you know, they're more interested probably probably in being able to uh, pick up a penny off the ground and have a good bowel movement. <laughs> that's, I think that's a good, that's a pretty good outlook for you and me, Chris. We got, uh, we got a lot, lot of good writing ahead of us. <laughs> and something to look forward right. to. <laughs> I was just thinking that uh, you're hitting a lot of key words uh, that I immediately am drawn to. I'm coming at it completely cold, so forgive me, Paul, uh, but I'll be the shorter version of Ed McMahon kind of reacting in the moment. But in thinking about doing something daily as a practice with intention, uh, my mantra right now is I got to finish a terrible novel rather than never finish something that I think is going to be great. And uh, it's still a, kind of a daily morale management struggle, the idea of something short and finite that no a human person will look at, but it's a regular practice that sounds very nice. Well, the practice is the key. I mean, you are you are what you do with your life. You are how you spend your time. And, uh, you know, if you're spending time submitting your poems to magazines, you're more of a submitter than a poet. So, um, I mean, I like the idea of writing more and uh, letting these submission opportunities um, drop into your lap organically. And I think they do um, if you spend enough time doing this, I think too many people are in, as in Sam Hamill's words, in a rush to publish. Too many people are interested in the public aspect of being a poet. And he says it's a nuisance. It's a waste of time. And, you know, here's a guy whose obit was in the New York Times because of his poetry life. So um, I think I think he was on to something. And, uh, you know, he spoke very clearly of ideals. And, you know, Sam worked it, too. So there's there's a balance in there. Um, I don't think, I mean, I think if I were Emily Dickinson, I wouldn't have a website. You know, of course, they didn't have websites when she lived. But my point is, if I were interested in total privacy as a poet, I wouldn't have a website, wouldn't have a Twitter feed and and what have you. So I, I am obviously interested in people reading my work, but I also resonate with uh, Clifford Still, the abstract expressionist, who has great um, at the Knox Albright Gallery, I think, in Buffalo. Yeah. Albright they, Knox, yep, yeah, you got it. Albright Knox. There's a great holding of his work there. And his great quote that McClure loved to quote it often was, uh, demands for communication are presumptuous and irrelevant. Now, balance that in the case of the Postcard Fest with some of your writing to, and it would be nice to connect with them because you're writing them a postcard. So to have something uh, off the wall or offensive or um, something 
that uh, they find totally unintelligible, um, I'm not sure that'd be the right approach. Certainly not ones that get across with meanness. And there were there was at least one example of that last year. And uncool, uncool. You know, this is a community that is being built, and there are certain community standards. I think. Sure, and just uh, that connection to the audience, like is much different on this tangible item that is going physically to somebody else's hand. So yeah, that obviously highlights that. And uh, just the last kind of connection going back to uh, what Ashley Pryor Geiger mentioned about this correspondence art idea was I think in the way she described it for her was a, in a large way, it, it was a democratization of their artistic process. Um, even just in the, in the, I guess the visual art sense, sending a piece on an envelope from place to place. It gets marked, nicked up, dinged up, and then that those imperfections become part of that that correspondence piece. So I guess, yeah, to the point where it's not going to be perfect, it's not supposed to be perfect, that was kind of a, a cool parallel to uh, something I kind of had on my mind for, for a little bit with that topic. Uh, what about the kind of going into connecting with the spontaneity of the postcard poems. What about the organic poetry? Um, that was big uh, as I was doing a little bit of research on your stuff. So kind of what, what role does that have in your creative process? Well, that's a phrase that comes out of the um, correspondence of Robert Duncan and Denise Levertov. And um, to have a friendship that was almost exclusively carried out via letters is a pretty astounding concept to think about in 2021 North American culture, um, that they actually sent letters. They actually had to wait a week or two to see the letter. They had to actually lick a stamp and put it on an envelope. And uh, that it was all collected in this giant volume that is uh, so rich to read and so, um, so evocative of the 50s and 60s and so stimulating to each of them. And so I think their theories about spontaneous composition are what are at the basis of organic form, which Levertov articulated most clearly in some notes on organic form. And, you know, it's a process of discovery. I think her great friendly amendment to Robert Creeley's comment that Olson published in Projective Verse said that form is never more than an extension of content, whereas Levertov said form is never more than a revelation of content which I thought was a very interesting, friendly amendment and clarification. And Levertov is um, is really quite remarkable in her willingness to put her ideas down, her ideas uh, in theory, down on paper when um, it was a very masculinist kind of culture. And so she had the uh, she had the nerve to do that. And it stands up very well, I think. I think that when one writes spontaneously with organic form, that that also becomes a model for one's life. One's life can be led by forces greater than the pen holder. And uh, they lead to some beautiful things. They lead to kismet. They lead to uh, synchronicity. They lead to conflict with other people. And resolution of that conflict or understanding more deeply one's own personal myth. So a lot of uh, individuation happens, I think, when you take this organic to heart, not just in writing, but also in one's own life. So, um, you know, if people wanted to know about organic form to read 
Duncan and Levertov and their um, their writings on theory, uh, that'd be a great place to start. And of course, my essays at Organic Poetry, I guess it's organicpoetry.org. They're part of my website, paulenelson.com. Uh, lots and lots of essays are there. And um, a couple of essays on the Duncan Levertov correspondence and their friendship, which fell apart, um, which is well well documented and very interesting. I think that when they had each other as correspondents, their work was the best. But I think that they peaked and their later work is not as good as that work that they produced, that poetry that they produced when they were in um, correspondence with each other. So, so organic form is another word for projective verse. It's another way of saying the practice of outside. It's another way of saying uh, impersonal verse, as has been said of Gary Snyder's work. So uh, many different ways to look at it. But uh, the Olson essay, Projective Verse, and the Levertov essay, uh, some notes on organic form are sort of like the, the mother and father of the whole post-World War II spontaneous composition ethos. Interested in that idea of individuation, what do you mean by that as far as how that kind of is connected with that type of creative process? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the reason that we're attracted to poetry is that it is uh, it's a way of knowing. It's an it's an you know it's a practice. Uh, it's a noetic practice, is how Robin Blazer described it. So, why are we writing poetry? Are we writing poetry, uh, you know, to get published in Poetry Magazine or to get an NEA grant or uh, because we have to publish because we're professors at a university or are we writing to have some very deep expression, uh, some expression of our deep selves, deep mind? And um, I think that's what I'm interested in. And so, you know, when we're shooting for that and we fall short, it becomes painfully evident in our lives when we're not individuated. We have we have shadow issues, shadow dances with other people um, that are very painful, that are hard to go through. I just went through that being diagnosed with prostate cancer last year and recovering from it and uh, just having it be an incredibly beautiful experience to learn about my own shadow issues and what that has attracted in my life and and how to really diffuse it by integrating those shadow issues. So that's where Jung, uh, you know, Jungian practice or Jungian theory comes in. That's where uh, dream journal practice comes in. That's where many, many practices come in to allow us to be more noble people and to, to be more compassionate people. That's where Buddhist practice comes in, uh, how to you know engage in right mind and right action, right thinking, and, and all the tenets of Buddhism. And uh, I think all these great traditions sort of intersect. As K- Krishnamurti said, the truth is a pathless land. So many different paths to get there. But when we get there, we can tell, we can tell by the quality of the person. We want to be around them. You know, like Walt Whitman talking about that old guy uh, swimming, you know, you just wanted to be around this person. And I think that's what, that's the quality that individuated people have. And I'm attracted to older people, um, older poets and older people in my spiritual community, because um, I have my senses, I don't think, have been that addled by capitalism where I think that old people are just taking up space, getting ready to die. I think their their experience and their wisdom is something I can learn from. So I think uh, I was really inspired by McClure in three poems. Michael McClure said, if poetry and science cannot change one's life, they're meaningless. And, you know, when I read that, I thought, yeah, that sounds good to me. I want some of that. And so 
I've been studying that poem, Dolphin Skull, since 1995, and it continues to amaze and astound. And it's Michael's own personal myth, you know, episodes from his childhood re-experienced through this moment of composition that are just fantastic, just fantastic. So, so yeah, individuation in a Jungian sense and uh, in a in a subwood sense, becoming a more noble human being, I would say. Just in terms of how I try to use writing for therapy, and you know, kind of a frustrated meditator for a long time. Um, short version before I get the headphones. Um, I guess I would put it in the form of a question. Uh, do you have a favorite meditative form of writing? Yeah, sure. Or is there a kind of writing or a mode that you're kind of deliberately speaking yourself in terms of Buddhist traditions or uh, using it as a tool for meditation? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it itself is very much like a meditation. Um, the practice of writing spontaneously um, is a different state. Um, I love George Bowring talking about how when you're writing a poem and you're listening very hard, listening to what the language has to say, and you quit your usual yapping, you'll have a happy experience when you get to be the first reader of the poem. <laughs> and I think that Bowering saying that, you know, in, in, in this culture, most people would say, no, 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 you are the one who wrote the poem. But Bowering gives us that subtle twist and says, um, you get to be the first reader of the poem. And so, I mean, he's very clearly talking about the practice of outside, that the source of poem is outside of you, that you're tapping into it, that it's being funneled through you as a medium, the received poem, or as the radio, in Jack Spicer's case, tuned to the station from Mars, and it's coming through you. And to have that experience, it's thrilling. You sit down and you write it, and you know you go through it, and then you read it, and you go, wow, look at this. I've got a friend who's learning about Spontaneous composition. I've been teaching workshops uh, again since uh, last fall. And I'm noting to him the music and how his lineation could better highlight the melopoeia of it. And he's, well, he's like, wow, I didn't notice that until you pointed it out. And I said, that's a good sign because you were so tuned to the moment that you weren't aware. And the poem, as a result, has brighter thoughts than he was aware of while writing. And if that, to me, is not a, a, a symptom, a sign that you're eclipsing the small self, I don't know what is. And I think that's what Buddhism is about. It's connecting to that, you know, that collective unconscious, that uncarved block, however you want to say it. And uh, that's the experience. I think that's, that's our birthright and that we live for and uh, can be very difficult when you're worried about how are you going to pay your rent or that you've been in a pandemic for 13 months and unemployment hasn't paid you for nine weeks and, you know, you're wondering how it's going to go. So, um, though, you know, just living in a, in a capitalist culture has its own pressures and demands upon your cuticles and all kinds of things that can stop that deep concentration that one gets from meditation, from yoga, from breathing exercises, from Latihan Kejuan from uh, ecstatic dance, from any number of things that give us the experience of being smaller and connected to something much larger and uh, much more potent.
Yeah, I, lo I love thinking about the artistic process or the creative process in that way. So that's I know it's come up before uh, on some of the some of the previous podcasts and the idea of genius as far as something that comes from without as opposed to coming from within. The creative process and the meditative process kind of intertwining. That's a very, very cool idea as well. I don't know if I want to skip to a, such a practical question at this point. But I guess in the in the larger writing process, how do you approach the I guess this idea of a spontaneous poem? Do you view it as something that's completed or supposed to be completed as is and just stands alone at that point? Or do you, you know, are there times where you go back to those things and rework them and develop them, connect them to other parts? Are they kind of, you know, are they a, a, a larger a piece to a larger puzzle, in other words? Well, that's a good question. Um when I finish writing something, the first thing I'll do is read it. And um, I'll read it aloud. And quite often you'll see that you've made some mistakes in your transcription, a mistake or two, or maybe a line break will be different, or any of number of small tunings. I think if you have to go back to something and do extensive revision, I love what Levertov said about it. It's probably because the poem didn't incubate long enough that you have to do extensive revision. And it's tough to go back. I, I know that Cos Jose Coser, who writes very much in serial form and very organically, he says he writes his poem in about 20 minutes. Coser uh, is a Cuban-American poet who writes in Spanish, so he's not well known in the English language world, but comes out of the neo-barroco tradition of Jose Lezama Lima, uh, in uh, Cuba and others like that. He will write a poem or two every day, and the next day he'll go back, he'll do the editing, and then he's done with it, and he moves on. And I really like that because, you know, in a week, two weeks, essentially I'll be a different person. I mean, if you look at the actual biology of it, you know, your, your cells change within six months. So to look back at a poem you wrote six months ago – Obviously, there may be a, be a mistake. Uh, there may be something that uh, you know doesn't doesn't sit well that you obviously fouled up, or there's a typo, or any number of things. So there's reasons to edit like that. But for the most part, it's it's written in the moment, and I think that's some of the beauty of spontaneous composition. And the other part of the beauty is you get to write a lot more. You don't have to hash over it or make it good for a publication or do whatever, you just keep writing, you know? And uh, I've got a lot of series of poems that I just kept writing, and and uh, I, I'm more interested in the next one. Sort of like Miles Davis never went back to playing. I think he went back to playing Kind of Blue once after it was current. Maybe. Or maybe I'm thinking of Birth of the Cool. One of those classic Miles. I know Birth of the Cool he redid like about – 40 years later. But for the most part, he was interested in looking forward, not backward. And I think there's great spontaneity. I mean, you look at Kind of Blue. In fact, you look to the liner notes of Kind of Blue, and Bill Evans gets spontaneous composition, uh, very, very much gets it, likens it to calligraphy in the liner notes to Kind of Blue. And Kind of Blue is a timeless, timeless record. In 500 years, if there is a planet and a habitable biosphere, they're going to be listening to Kind of Blue. You know, if they save their CD player or Spotify or whatever it is they'll be listening on, and uh, they're going to have no idea of how that how that happened. They're gonna they're gonna have a similar feeling, a similar experience to when you or I listened to it. They're going to have that 
two o'clock in the morning, feeling, you know, everything's perfect kind of a thing. Nice, mellow kind of tempo, but not, you know, not uh, greeting card kind of sentiment, not sentimental, not sappy, really, really beautiful art. Artists at the heart, at, at the height of their powers of interpretation and articulation. And uh, yeah, that's, I think, the best poetry uh, hits that. It's that kind of level as well, whether it's spontaneous or not. There's lots of beautiful poetry in the world that's not composed spontaneously. Um, but this happens to be the kind that interests me the most and the kind I find most fulfilling. The jazz connection is one we got to go in just because of the, the obvious connection to improvisation. So you're talking about you know recordings that are not planned out ahead of time. What is it about music that kind of drew you in? Is that maybe, was that maybe, would you call it an initial kind of inspiration or what role did that play? Well, absolutely. I was a radio broadcaster for 26 years. I grew up in Chicago. Um, I grew up listening to progressive FM radio, uh, including Triad and WXRT. Uh, XRT is still on the air, 93.1. And, you know, in a typical set, they would have, Led Zeppelin, Bach, The Ramones, Weather Report, a comedy bit, and a couple of public service announcements. I mean, unheard of today, except, of course, for the Internet. And then you've got to sift through, you know, 7 million shitty websites to, to find the, the right content that sings to you. So, yeah, music, a huge influence. And I was, a, you know, a DJ long before I was a poet. I didn't take up poetry until my 30s. So uh, there is a very musical aspect in everything I do. You know, my mother being born in Cuba, there's also a sort of a, a, a preference for more complex rhythms than uh, iambic pentameter or 4-4 rock and roll for that matter. Although there's still a lot of rock and roll I enjoy and listen to. Um, I think man mainly for nostalgic reasons because I grew up with it and I find myself drawn to, uh, you know, to more jazz and uh, ECM type stuff. Carla Blay. I love how she's in her 80s peaking and putting out some of the most beautiful music of her life with a record Life Goes On with her husband, Steve Swallow and Andy Shepard. Beautiful, poignant, incredibly heartfelt music. So, yeah, music plays a big role. And there's a lot of parallels between uh, jazz and what I do. I'd love to have a poetry uh, press as elegant and consistent as ECM is as a label, that would be something to aspire to. Yeah, Chris, I feel like you uh, possibly would have something to add to the, uh, the music connection and kind of the inspiration, maybe a, a, even an early stage inspiration before getting into more of the, uh, the literary world. Yeah, so the, the key word for me was uh, spontaneity or the paradox of controlled spontaneity or spontaneity when you need it. And I, when I was growing up as a teenager, I was always interested in writing. For me, spontaneous writing usually was in the form of either letters or emails to girls that I had hopeless crushes on. Uh, but it would be spontaneous and that I never knew what I was going to write about. And I'd sit down and I was always proud of some little quips, some little jokes. It was kind of creating a personal mythology built into that. And I assumed that was my strong suit, that I'm kind of comfortable as a writer and articulating myself and creating narrative or, or creating an interesting way to get to a joke or a punchline. But I started playing out early enough, like it was late teens, 
that I just got weekly practice that I couldn't reproduce as a writer. And somewhere in 10 years, I became much more confident improvising in a trio setting. In a jazz trio setting, of course, it was all cribbing at first. It was just me reproducing things that I liked badly. So it wasn't really improvising. It was, oh, this line always works here in all the things you are. So I know exactly what my fingers are supposed to do. But I actually could watch the connections happen where I could kind of stop thinking about it and start letting the music say stuff as opposed to running lines that I knew were good. And that was a key moment that I feel like I kind of accidentally stumbled into it because I wasn't trying too hard with music. I was just doing it so frequently. And with writing, I'm still, I overthink and I analyze and second guess. Um, and it's still tough with the music as well. I have terrible anxiety. I get, I get very, very difficult time performing in front of people, even though I like it and it, and it turns me on at the same time. But I reached a point where I felt like I could say something through a solo, for instance. And that actually would be something I'd be confident in. Whereas with writing the infinite second guessing loop that's going to draw us out. Uh, so that you never fully connect. There's just a lot of false starts. My my daughter, my oldest daughter, uh, Rebecca, she grew up in Auburn. And when I got separated from her mom, we did a ceremony and she said, I want you to promise you'll live in Auburn until I graduate from high school. And I said, yes, I will. And it was difficult. There are aspects of that town that were... Um, small town and small minded and, and difficult. Um, and, uh, and yet I stayed there six weeks after she graduated from high school, we were, we were out of town. I was, I was gone back to Seattle. And, um, we used to write these to kill time, these collaborative poems, the exquisite corpse. And, um, we had a system for doing it. We took these little notebooks that are about this big, maybe four inches three inches wide and four inches long or something like that, maybe two and a half inches wide. And we did each start a poem and then write a line and then one word or maybe two small ones on the next line and fold it over and pass it back. And, you know, you have to be quick. You don't have a lot of time to think about it. So you first thought, best thought, very much a Ginsburg thing. And so back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And we'd come out and we'd read them after and there'd be some beautiful surprises and things that worked better than others. And um, she ended up studying journalism at Northwestern, so as a graduate of the Medill School of Journalism. And when she first started her career after graduating, she had a, a professor who said, Rebecca, you just have to write. A lot of people have to edit their stuff, but it just comes out of your head well written, is what he told her. And I think that the exquisite corpse, I call them the duo corpse exercise, had a lot to do with training her mind to trust that first impulse and to sort of put the editor's mind at bay. And that's in part what the uh, Postcard Fest tries to do. And um, I think with enough practice, and the problem is it's the hardest way to write spontaneously. So, you know, you could spend 10 years, 15 years apprenticing writing spontaneously, and there is a lot of shit you never want anyone to see. But as Ginsburg said, I think in the book Cosmopolitan Greetings, and I'll paraphrase, uh, he said, we can write anything we want as long as we don't show anybody. And mm -hmm. and that's the key. It's like, are you writing because eventually you see yourself showing somebody that? Or are you writing simply for the joy of trying to get it down? And uh, I think if you write enough spontane spontaneously and you stick with the practice, 
you'll find it's the only way that you want to write. And there are levels, there are happy accidents that come out of that, that you couldn't have planned, but you can prepare the ground. Like you said, you can prepare the ground for these happy accidents to happen. So um, you're creating an environment in that way. And uh, yeah, that's a great lesson for anyone's life is to not, to not force it, but to, you know, create an environment in which something like that can happen. And, you know, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be not afraid to fail. Um, and there's lots of other qualities. Uh, you have to be humble, I think. You have to be diligent. You have to be persistent. Uh, all these things are very helpful in, in the act, I think. I don't know how much of this is true or how much of this is mythology. But I like the mythology, even if it's not true, that Herbie Hancock is a Buddhist. Does that sound familiar to you? Um, and, of course, as a piano player, he is able to seemingly embody the idea of peace, present moment, spontaneity, no judgment. And within that, your whole worlds open up. And I can get it maybe five or six seconds at a time. As much as I've tried to meditate, I feel successful if I can do a six-second stretch purely in the present moment, no judgment, no intrusive thoughts. So 10 seconds is the next next goal. Well, poco a poco, yeah. And I think that um, quantifying it is probably not helpful either. You know, just letting it happen. And I sat today, I sat 20 minutes and it was better than average or I could have been better or probably the coffee didn't help or any number of things. And to track it and have some sense of it and just to be just to be there for it, I think is the important thing, just to do it. I think if you do it enough with a good intention, that the good things, the, the fruits of the practice always follow and convince them. I'm a bit of an offshoot, just uh, the meditation idea, because I've been experimenting with uh, binaural beats. And I'm wondering if, I mean, for me, I'm willing to just go along with, even if it just is placebo, I'm perfectly fine with it. But I'm wondering if there are kind of ways, like like the binaural beat idea of kind of altering or slightly adjusting your brain waves into a, a more meditative place that just that kind of like settles things even enough or even just in a minor way that i don't know maybe even just a way to refocus and like i said it could just be that that one step you take just to stop and like maybe even just set the, the intention in a certain way even if the the brainwave technology isn't quite panning out as as claimed but have you ever just as a kind of a, like I said, an offshoot. Have you ever experimented with or listened to the binaural beats? No, no, I don't think so. But I have done a little bit of neurofeedback, and uh, it's it was a long time ago. And they had it set up, and they told me that the way it was evolving was there were going to be video games that you play uh, by adjusting the, your own brain waves. And to me, that was fascinating. And as my younger daughter is. Um, uh, uh, diagnosed as having dyslexic processing style, um, it's my hope that she will be able to use uh, neurofeedback in such a way that would be helpful. I do find that she is almost like a savant with music, and you can imagine the playlists that I hit her with on Spotify and her getting to know these tunes and just her being able to sing the chorus of Spanish bombs by the clash or, uh, you know, talking heads when the one song comes up and she knows at the end, they're going to be doing baby talk. Goo, goo, ga, ga, ga. And she, she loves that. And the jazz as well. Um, you know, all kinds of jazz that she hears here. So, um, 
I, I think there's definitely something to music and brainwaves. And um, yeah, I would, I think that's a worthy, uh, worthy endeavor. I mean, you know, it's a little like what Duke Ellington said about music. If it sounds good, it is. And I think that goes for poetry. If poetry sounds good, it is. And, you know, um, if it doesn't sound good, there's probably a reason for that. It's probably rhetoric uh, masquerading as poetry and somebody trying to convince you of something or trying to prove a point, which I'm really not interested in. We went to see Bernie Sanders in 2016 at Safeco Field. And, you know, you wait to get in, you line up around the block, you go in to see him, you get through all the opening acts, and then you hear him talk. And I said to my partner, are you into this? And she said, no. And, you know, we love Bernie. We kind of wish he'd have been the president. We're happy that he was really happy with the, with the stimulus. If Bernie says it's okay, then I can live with it, you know. But it's rhetoric, and uh, we really don't have time for that. Uh, Spicer said, the muse is patient with truth and commentary as long as it doesn't get into the poem. Nice. I like that. Do you have I'm 100 percent going to steal the idea of poetry versus commentary. That's that's very good. If you have even a, a recommendation or two to get into, maybe um, some of the higher information jazz or like the information dense jazz you're kind of referring back to, you know, if people are not into that genre and just do you have a recommendation recommendation or just something that kind of gets to something that I guess you mentioned kind of blue already. Uh, but perhaps another one that one might be a good starter? Well, I love Monk. I mean, Monk is just a joyous, innovative guy. In, in fact, the guy was open in Subud, too, which is really interesting. I think he was doing Latihan on the bandstand while Coltrane was doing solos. I, I really believe that. You know, Monk is just a, an amazing uh, force. You know, for those who didn't get Monk, when he put out an album of Duke Ellington covers, they're like, oh, I get it now. You know, it's kind of weird and uh, kind of cool and, and definitely swings like a motherfucker. I like a lot of the ECM stuff. Um, the Carla Blay, just part of that. I've got playlists on Spotify which uh, have jazz and they have different moods. Um, so I'm on, I'm on Spotify as Splabman, S-P-L-A-B-M-A-N. And I even have a memorial playlist, which has some jazz, but has some rock and has songs that have a real strong emotional attachment for me. Having grown up in Chicago, uh, Steve Goodman's City of New Orleans is a beautiful song that just makes me cry sometimes because of the, uh, you know, racial harmony, uh, harmony um, subtext of what he's talking about. Uh, Wondering Where the Lions Are by Bruce Coburn uh, because of this dream that has been sort of eclipsed somehow. The lions are not as frightening as they were once before. So these playlists are a form of art, I think. And uh, Carla Blay, Thelonious Monk, uh, some, of, some of Pat Metheny's work, a lot of the old Blue Note stuff, um, a lot of the old bebop. But I like that you know, weather report. Oh, my God. Weather report like Black Market, or Pursuit of the Woman with a Feathered Hat. These uh, are amazing. Uh, jo the mu musicianship, Jocko Pastorius bass. I mean, did you ever hear his version of Donna Lee? Jocko playing Charlie Parker's part on the fretless bass? I mean, who the fuck does that? And Jocko does it. He, I mean, this guy's got 
balls this motherfucker to play Charlie Parker on fretless bass with a with a like bongo uh, accompaniment. I mean, that's just stunning. And Jocko's uh, solo that he played on the 830 record, the live record. I had a chance to see Weather Report in Chicago at the uh, Auditorium Theater, a an old Victorian building that uh, a set that allegedly has acoustics so perfect they carry a whisper up to the seventh balcony and i saw a weather report there and it's just a mind blower so yeah there's a lot of weather report especially during the jocko period a lot of that fusion i dig you know chick korea just died and i went on a chick binge for about 10 days that the record returned to forever not necessarily the group because that's a really kind of heavy-handed thing which i liked back in the day and i like less now but Chick uh, with Light of Light as a Feather with Flora Purim, um, some of that early Chick stuff, and then his his children's songs. Oh, Chick Corea and Gary Burton, Crystal Silence, or they did a they did a concert in Tokyo, and I saw that tour when I was like 19 years old. That is just phenomenal. Gary Burton, so much good stuff. His record Tanglewood '63, uh, his his um, cover of that tune. From one of his records, uh, I love, love, love Gary Burton. And, of course, he's an ECM guy. Um, Carla Blay, Escalator Over the Hill, an opera with poetry as its libretto. Paul Haynes, um, you know, uh, Emily Haynes' dad, a Canadian, Emily Haynes. Beautiful work of putting some of her dad's poetry to music. There's a, um, a song... Oh, God, I can't think of it. A song that she did from a poem that was written for her. And it's incredibly beautiful. So, um, you know, I could I could probably look to my playlist and find other things. But not just jazz, but stuff like Steve Reich and Philip Glass and, um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the world music we listen to. Um, so uh, and I've got whole playlists of, of stuff that I could go. I could tell a story probably with each tune. They're all all there for a reason and quite meaningful and, and moving or uplifting or whatever. So yeah, all kinds of, all kinds of jazz. And the beauty is that, you know, a lot of it is, is there uh, for us to be able to hear a lot of it's on YouTube. I mean, that Gary Burton Chick Korea concert in Tokyo is on YouTube. And like I listened to it, I think watched it the day after or two days after Chick died. And it was like, wow, I was a 19 year old kid. And something led me to Chicago Fest on Navy Pier to see these two guys do this. And oh my God, fantastic. Changes it changes your head. It does. One of the sinister parts for me about the lockdown was I did, I lost pretty much all of my music circles or anybody that I would gossip about music with, because apparently I was doing more of that in person than I thought. And I I just haven't had an online community to kind of trade notes with. It, among your circles, and this could be for, for either of you, is there a consensus around Snarky Puppy or the piano player Corey Henry? Is it, do you sense that there's an opinion uh, on either that band or that piano player? I've heard good things. I, I can't say that um, I've listened to a lot of the music, so I really can't offer an educated response. But I've got a friend who's a flute player and says good things about Snarky Puppy, and I value his opinion. It's uh, a clear-cut case where I'm exactly at the vortex of jealousy that this person is mind-blowingly so much better than I'll ever be. Why even bother? But also kind of that spiritual, like, oh, you feel kind of tickled inside and like, wow, I didn't realize things like that were possible. 
and you're kind of at that exact juncture between the frustration but also the inspiration. And I haven't encountered a lot of musicians like that. Uh, and I don't think he's being clever. I think he's legitimately got the goods. There are some people who seem good, but you can just, they're very technical. As it feels like it's coming from inside. Yeah, well, we all stand more revealed over time. We'll kind of uh, take the turn to land our uh, land our discussion. Do you have any new or upcoming projects you'd want to mention before we finish up? I'm working with Jason Wirth and the Splab Board on Cascadian Zen, an anthology of poems and prose and interviews um, that get to the core of the Spire region and its connection to the East and how Zen practice, how mindfulness practice manifests here in the Spire region which starts at Cape Mendocino, California, and goes up to southeast Alaska and inland to the Continental Divide. I think identifying as a bioregionalist um, is a correct priority, especially given the, um, the falsities of the nation state. I think the nation state is outdated, and we're seeing that very much in play. We did in the last four years during the administration of the Manchurian cantaloupe, as uh, Elaine Boozler calls him. Um, so there's that book. Uh, I have a book uh, of 17 syllable poems, American Sentences, which will be reissued in a second edition by Apprentice House later this year. In fact, I got to get them the manuscript. Um, they've got to get that ready for publication. And um, I have a second book of transcribed interviews. The first American Prophets was released in time for the 25th anniversary of Splab and Cascadian Prophets is next in line. And I have not published, even though Diane DePrima and Ed Sanders were not Cascadians per se, I have half a mind to include them in the book as honorary Cascadians, along with Robin Blazer, who uh, I was the last person, I was honored to be the last person who interviewed Robin. So that interview should see print here in this next book, which I hope will be at least fall 2022. And then the latest series of poems I'm working on is um, Flexible Mind, written after uh, Michael McClure's uh, Dharma devotions from the Hummingbird Sangha and his 42nd in that series, uh, which was a poem called Flexible Mind. So I'll be sure to include some of those links on our website when this is posted so you can see those. Can people get involved in the Poetry Postcard Fest? Is that still open? Yes, registration is open till July 18. Popo.submittable.com. Um, Popo.cards is the website. Lots of information. Interviews with past postcard participants. Our goal is to have uh, 10,000 people doing this festival before I retire at age 70 in 10 and a half years. And we're, we're on a beeline towards that goal, but we see how the act of sending postcards is an act of peace. It's an act of Buddhist ahimsa. It is at very least doing no harm and at very best connecting people in a very direct one-on-one -on -one way so that we realize we have more in common and so that we develop what I like to call a heterotroph solidarity. I think that's a perfect way to end it. Yeah, so we'll have that link as well, popo.cards. I was on the website earlier today, so like you said, a lot of good stuff just to get a little more familiar with that concept. 
Uh, but again, thank you very much for joining us. I'm grateful for your time and intelligent questions and your preparation and uh, um, your kind presences. I'm very grateful to have this kind of a forum, and I wish you continued success. Thank you very much. Appreciate we really it. really appreciate it.